So in high school, uh, junior year, I actually started running track, and I know you wouldn't probably think that by looking at me now. I ran distance. I ran the mile. I ran the two mile. I weighed about 145 pounds, and once again, you wouldn't know that by looking at me now. But I really enjoyed track, and it was really fun, and just got a lot of enjoyment out of it. But two weeks before uh, the track season ended, um, and we were getting ready for, for state and, and all that fun stuff, um, one day, just running around the track, I finished my run. And although I finished my run and I slowed down, uh, my heart didn't. It just kept beating at this super, super fast pace. And it, and it didn't slow down for the next several hours. And it actually didn't slow down. It kept pace at about um, 170 beats a minute for the next 24 hours. And this scared me to death. This was the first thing I, I feel like I had ever really worried about. You know, because as a junior high or high school, you think you're absolutely invincible. You can do anything. Nothing's going to affect you. Nothing's going to hurt you. And so I was totally freaked out. And I went to the doctor. My parents took me to the doctor. And they did some tests. And they looked at my heart. And, and eventually it slowed down. And it went back into normal rhythm. But it still absolutely scared me to death. It absolutely scared me to death. And so I went back. And a couple days later, and the doctor talked to me again. And here's what he said. He said, you're absolutely fine. There's, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, it just got into this arrhythmia, but you don't have anything to worry about. You're, you're totally good. But for the next six months in school, I kept walking around with my hand on my heart, like I was doing the Pledge of Allegiance uh, about eight hours a day. And my friends are just like, what's up with you? And I'm just like, I'm just really scared something bad's going to happen with my heart because it, it started racing and then it slowed down, but I'm just really freaked out that something bad's going to happen. They were like, didn't the doctor tell you you're fine? Like you got a clean bill of health and, and, and you're normal? And I was just like, yeah, they did, but, but I just can't get past it. And here's what happened. This thing, this health thing, it consumed me. It consumed me, and what it did is it also robbed me of any joy. I was so focused on this every day at school. No joke, my friends just started, started to make fun of me because I didn't know what to do. They were just like, come on, man, quit doing the pledge. And it, it absolutely consumed me. It consumed my mind. It consumed what I did with my time. It, it consumed everything for, for that six months. And, and what I found in life is that shame is a lot like that. Shame tends to consume us. It consumes us, and we all wrestle with this. No matter who you are in here today, we all wrestle against shame. And shame can come from several different places. It can come from sin of your past. It can come from maybe just feeling like you're not adequate, or you don't measure up, or there's some area in your life where you're just not good enough, and so you feel the shame. It can come from hidden sin that you haven't shared, that you haven't brought out into the open. It can, it can come from um, all of these different areas in life, but none of, us, none of us don't wrestle with this thing called shame. It's something we constantly are wrestling with, and it's something that we constantly are wrestling against, no matter where it comes from. And for some of you, maybe this is something, maybe there's something in your life, maybe there's some pain point area where there's, there's been shame in your life, and the thing that you want more than anything else in, in all of life is just freedom from that. Freedom from having this consume you. Freedom from having this consume your thoughts, consume your day-to-day, and consume your life, no matter where it comes from. And all you want more than anything else is freedom. Because shame is a, it's a lot like a robber who just keeps robbing you over and over and over. It's a lot like a dog who's chasing you and just won't stop And you end up feeling absolutely worn out and worn down and even hopeless and overwhelmed. That's what shame does. 
And it's something that we all wrestle with. And for some of us, maybe it's been something that we've been wrestling with a certain area in our life for years and years and years. No matter how hard we've tried to shake it, we just haven't been able to. Like I said, maybe it's a past sin, or maybe it's just a feeling of inadequacy, or maybe it's a hidden sin, or maybe it's just something in your life or in your past or in your present that seems to be haunting you and holding you captive. And in the midst of this feeling called shame, in the midst of this feeling comes an incredible truth when it's experienced. And that's what we're going to see in this passage today in John chapter 4 as Jesus interacts with this woman in a small town who doesn't have the best past, we're going to see the greatest enemy to shame and our greatest hope. And so what I want us to see really clearly today as we look at this passage for a few minutes is that where shame is a prison, the only true key to freedom is grace. Where shame is a prison that holds us back and haunts us and holds us captive, the only true key to freedom is grace. And my prayer for us today is that we can just have an honest discussion about this. My prayer for you today is that as you see how Jesus interacts with this woman in this small town, that you would be encouraged, that you would be challenged, and that you would not leave here with your head down, feeling like there's this monkey that you can't get off your back and you just have to live with for the rest of your life, but that you would leave here with a lighter load, with hope, because there's good news. So here's what we see. We're going to be in John chapter 4, and if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you've, if you've got an app on your phone, you can, you can get on there. Um, we're going to have the verses up here, so you can also look up here. But here's what we see. In John chapter 4, here's how it starts. We see that Jesus leaves John the baptizer, and Jesus and his disciples, they head um, to Galilee. They leave Judah, they're headed to Galilee, and they have to pass through Samaria. So they have to pass through this Samaria, and they pass through this small town. And Jesus is tired from his journey, and we find that he um, goes to this well, the well of Jacob, and he sits beside this well, and it's around 12 o'clock. And so that's where we pick up the story. We're going to start in verse 7, if you'd read along with me. Jesus is at this well in this small town, and it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Here's what you need to understand about this. It tells it right here, but Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Meaning Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. There was a clear racial divide. And so the fact that Jesus would have talked to a Samaritan at all would have been absolutely scandalous and unheard of. The fact that Jesus would talk to a Samaritan woman would have been insane. And so this lady, she's caught off guard. She's like, hey, you're Jewish. I'm a Samaritan. We don't exactly get along. Why are you striking up this conversation with me? Because uh, we, just, we just don't talk with each other. This isn't something that happens. In fact, the closest thing in our time um, that, that we could think of to relate in this way would be if a, if a white man in the 50s was hanging out or having a conversation with a black woman. It would have been unheard of. It, it wouldn't have been kosher in culture. 
And that's what John makes incredibly clear to us. Jesus strikes up this conversation with someone who he should not have been having a conversation with. But what you notice about Jesus is uh, he doesn't exactly follow the rules as everybody thinks he should. And so Jesus answered her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the living water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw again. You got to love this about Jesus. Jesus turns the conversation spiritual because Jesus knows what he came to do. He came to redeem us. He came to offer us new life and he knows exactly what this woman needs. And so he gets right to the heart of the matter. And so he turns this conversation in a very spiritual way. And he says, basically, if you knew who you were talking to, if you knew who you were talking to and you knew what I had to offer, you would be making a request of me. And here's her response. When you look at this just on the surface level, you think, oh, this woman's just confused. She's like, what are you talking about? Living water. Here's the deal. She wasn't confused. Not in the way that we often think if you, if you read this passage. She knew that Jesus was talking figuratively. She knew that he was talking figuratively about spiritual things. And this made her really, really uneasy. And that's why when she says this line about, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Here's what she's essentially saying. You're saying you can deliver on more than you really can. I mean, come on, who do you think you are? Are you saying that you're greater than our father Jacob? This is his well. You can give this uh, spiritual renewal, this thing that you're calling living water. And don't we do this all the time? I mean, if we're really honest. Jesus, are you really going to deliver? Can I really trust you? Are you going to follow through? And so this is her response. And Jesus makes it incredibly clear here. I love, I love what Jesus does. He just cuts right to the heart of the matter. He says, hey, I'm not talking about some magic well water, all right? Like, let's just make that really clear. I'm not talking about some magic well water that I'm going to sell for like 19 bucks a bottle, and it'll be the, the biggest seller on the infomercial next week. He's, he says, I'm talking about eternal life. I have something amazing to offer you. And she's really, really uneasy. She's really uneasy here. And so she tries to stop the conversation. She tries to stop the conversation, so she just goes ahead and she says this in the last verse. Okay, you're talking about this living water. You say you've got something to offer. If you do, give it to me. Give it to me so that I don't get thirsty. Give it to me so I don't have to come here. Now, on the surface, it looks like she's literally just saying, hey, if you, if you have this water that you can offer to where I don't have to come here, give it to me. But she's, she just wants to stop this conversation. Because she's actually saying something far deeper. She's saying something at a heart level. Hey, if you have this eternal life to offer me, if you have this new life that you can give me, then give it to me. Because my life isn't great. And if you knew my past, and you knew my present, 
there's no way that you would want anything to do with me. And you wouldn't be talking with me right now at this well at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Because you have no idea what I deal with on the day to day. But here's what's amazing. Jesus knows her heart. And he knows her past. He knows her heart, he knows her past, and he knows everything about her. It's no surprise to him. So look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Whew. This is, this is my, my mom was the best at doing this to me. In high school, let's just say I didn't always follow the rules. And so sometimes I'd come home at night, and uh, I would tell her, you know, I'm going to go hang out at my friend Jeremy's house. And so when I would come in, she would say, hey, what'd you, what'd you do at Jeremy's? I'd say, oh, not much. And then she would say, yeah, I know you didn't do much, because I called Jeremy's mom, and it turns out that you weren't at his house. And it was just like, what you've said is true. You know, what, what can I say to that? <laughs> and that's what happens here. I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop. Because she has no rebuttal. She has nothing to say. She's probably just grasping for, how do I respond to this? He's just unveiled the greatest source of my shame. He's just taken what I've been trying to hide and what I've been trying to hold back and what I've been trying to run from, and he's just unveiled it. And so what can she say but, yeah, you're right. What you say is true. And this seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Like, how does this connect? Like, Jesus is talking about living water, and then he's like, hey, go get your husband. Here's the reality, though. She had to understand first her great need in order to understand the great gift that he had to offer. And it's important here that we understand what the time of day is. But it's 12 o'clock. It's in the afternoon. You may think, well, that's no big deal. Sixth hour, 12 o'clock. Why is that a big deal? It was a big deal because all the women from the town, they would have come to draw water early in the morning before it got hot. They would have all come early before it got hot out. But yet she's there at 12 o'clock. And she's clearly there by herself. And so what does this show us? It shows us that she's trying to avoid everybody. Because of her past, because of her shame, because of what she's living with. And that's what shame does, it isolates us. Shame isolates us from community. It isolates us from being known. It makes us uh, want to just hang out by ourselves instead of be open with anyone else. Because we think that it's so ugly and we don't want to look at it and so we push it to the side. And that's what this woman was doing. She was here by herself because she didn't want to face the other women in the town. She didn't want to experience their looks of condemnation and rejection for her past and for what she was even doing in her present. That's why she simply said this. Did you notice what she said when Jesus said, like, go get your husband? She just says, I don't have a husband. Because she, she felt like if she told the whole story that she would be rejected. Because shame produces fear. It, it does. I experience this all the time. I'm sure you do too. We can just be honest. Shame produces fear. It produces fear that if we open up about what thing we've done or what, what thing we're wrestling with or this secret that we've held that, that we're going to be rejected. That people are going to look at us differently. And so it produces, this, uh, it produces this fear within us. 
this fear of rejection. I had a friend from high school send me a message on Facebook recently, and he knows I'm a pastor, and we weren't super close in high school, but once again, he, he knows I'm a pastor, and so he just opened up. He wanted some, um, he wanted some counsel on some stuff he's going through with his wife. He's, he's struggling with an addiction, and he, he wasn't sure what to do. And so my first question is, who have you shared this with? Who have you talked with this about? And he's, he's not a Christian, and he just, he just told me, I haven't, I haven't shared this with anybody. Because I would lose everything. That's what shame makes us feel. It's this lie that if we, if we open up, if we're honest about it, then we'll lose everything. We'll lose our relationships. People will look at us differently. It produces this fear. This fear that makes us hide from community, makes us hide from reality. And so I want to say this uh, really, really clearly, hopefully. If you, in here right now, if you have a relationship with Jesus, hear, hear me out. If you have a relationship with Jesus, condemnation that produces shame is no more present and no more real in your life than a monster under a child's bed. If you have a relationship with Jesus, condemnation which produces this shame is is no more real and no more present than a monster under a child's bed. And you might say, yeah, but what do I do with this feeling of shame? Because that's real. What do I do every day when I wrestle against this? When I feel condemned? When I don't feel good enough? When I have this uh, body issue that, that I just don't feel like I measure up. When I have this struggle and I feel like I'm less than, what do I do then? Because this is a day-to-day. So, so, so don't, just, don't just give me truth. Tell me what to do. And if you're a parent in here and your child thinks that they have monsters under their bed, which I hear that they occasionally do, what do you do? You look under the bed and you shine a light on it. You show that there's nothing there. You expose it. And that's what Jesus does here. He shines a light on her shame. He shines a light on this pain point in her life. This area where she's experienced great shame because she's had five husbands and she's living with a guy that she's not married to right now. And here's, here's what's amazing. And here's what's amazing about Jesus. Here's what's so awesome about Jesus. He doesn't reject her. He doesn't turn his back on her. He doesn't walk away like everybody else has done. Everybody in the town, and this is what she expected, but it's not what she gets. Instead, he offers her freedom. He offers her freedom from rejection, freedom from condemnation. He offers her eternal life. He offers her a scandalous woman, scandalous grace. Grace that would have been unheard of. Because to be honest, if somebody found out that she was living with this guy, she could have faced the death penalty. So it was a secret that she was hiding. But Jesus comes along and he does what no one else has ever done. And this is what he does with you and this is what he does with me. He offers us scandalous grace. He says, whatever your greatest pain point is, whatever your greatest sin is, whatever that looks like in your life, I'll give you freedom. There's no strings attached. I'll give you grace and I'll give you freedom. And yeah, you don't deserve it. Nobody does. But that's the beauty of his love and that's the beauty of his grace. That's the beauty of his love, and that's the beauty of his grace. And so uh, here's the deal. I want to say this really quickly. It's easy sometimes to confuse guilt and shame. And so let's not do that. Guilt is, is what you've done, but shame, it, 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 it tries to define you. It's more about who you are. And so should, should this lady have felt a little bit of guilt about what she was doing? Well, yeah, hopefully when we sin or when we rebel against God, we feel a little bit of guilt, and it draws us to repentance. 
It makes us come clean. It makes us walk in the light. But what she was experiencing was something even far deeper, and that's shame. And it was defining her, who she was, her identity. I watched a um, TED Talk recently with Monica Lewinsky. And if, uh, unless you've been living under a rock for the past 25 years, you know who Monica Lewinsky is. She considers herself, and she's considered by many, to be patient zero as far as public shaming goes. That when everything went down with her and President Clinton, she was shamed. She was shamed publicly more than anybody else um, has been or had been up to that time. And so some years later, she shares this talk about shame, and she talks about public shame. And she shares her story, and she says a few things that are really important and we should really look at. She says, public shaming has become a blood sport in our culture. It's something that happens day in and day out. I mean, let's be honest, it's the reason TMZ exists. And she says, we have created a culture of humiliation. We're living in a culture of humiliation. I don't know how many of you watched, um, even on Saturday night, uh, there was the the Bruce Jenner interview with Diane Sawyer. Um, I watched it, I was intrigued, and I wanted to see what it was all about. And to be honest, as I watched it, and as I heard his story, and as I heard the shaming that's happened with him over the past year, and the paparazzi tracking him down, and making fun of him, and him being the, um, the, the, the punchline of just a ton of jokes, I went from being interested to actually just feeling, feeling bad, feeling sorry for him. I'm not at all saying or condoning you know, what's going on in his life and what he's wrestling with. But here's what I am saying. <laughs> people are people and our values equal. And he doesn't, he doesn't deserve to be torn apart, to be torn down, to be the punchline of a joke. Because just like Jesus created you, he created him. And he made all of us with value. He made all of us with worth. And so I hope no matter who you are, no matter what you're dealing with, I, my, my deepest prayer is that whether you're gay, whether you're straight, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're homeless, whether you're a CEO, that you would be welcome here. Now, some of you are getting real freaked out. Here's what I'm saying. That doesn't water down the gospel, and it doesn't water down the reality of sin in all of our lives. But my prayer is that we would be a church, a church that, that has open doors for anyone to come in to hear about the grace and love of Jesus. That's what Jesus wants. That's what he's showing here. This is a lady who no one would have welcomed into their church. No one would have wanted to have anything to do with. People would have stood in the corner and just made jokes and made fun, but Jesus has a conversation. He walks across the room. He walks across the street. He has a conversation with this woman because he sees her as valuable. She's not just to be discarded and tossed away. And so culture, it would say what you've done and how you feel is who you are. Here's the beauty of what Jesus says. He says who I am and what I've done makes you who you are. If you have a relationship with me, if you experience my grace, who I am and what I've done makes you who you are. And that is free, free from condemnation, free from shame, free from your sin, free from your past, free from the mistakes that you're gonna make in your present. You're forgiven, you're loved, you're clean, you're a child of God. Some of you just need to hear that. Some of you just need to hear that and let it soak in. You are loved. No matter what your greatest sin is, no matter what your greatest thing is in your life that you are wrestling with, you do not need to work to measure up. You are loved. You are loved. You are clean. 
You are not too broken for God's grace. You're loved. You're forgiven. You don't need to walk with your head down, but instead walk in God's grace. Because grace is sort of like, this is the best analogy I could think of last night because I was struggling to find one, but um, in high school, I was pretty amazed by this product called Scotchgard. I don't know why. I think it's because I could spray it on my hats and on my shoes, and no matter what fell on it, like it wouldn't stick. And grace is kind of like that. And here's what I mean. (laughs) Here's, Here's what I mean. Is that God's grace covers us in such a way that even when we make mistakes, even when we still sin, even when all those things come down, they beat off because God's grace has already forgiven us. It doesn't stick. You're clean. You're clean. You're loved. Let's go on. Verse 19. So a woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Maybe. Um, He knows what you've done. He knows everything about you. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. But when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She's incredibly uncomfortable at this point. Because um, having to face your past and having to face fornication and all of these things is not the most comfortable thing just to talk about. And so what does she do? She tries to change the conversation to religion. She's like, let's just talk about worship. Let's just talk about something else other than me. And for us, how true is this of us? I know it's true of me. I'd rather talk about religion. I'd rather talk about theology. I'd rather talk about a baseball game. I'd rather talk about a basketball game. I'd rather talk about hockey, and I don't even like hockey, than than actually get past the surface to the heart of of what I'm dealing with. We We don't like to look at it. We'd rather stay on the surface a lot of times than than really get to the heart of the matter. We're really struggling. Where we're really still feeling condemned even though we know that we're not. Where we're still hiding out. But it's at that heart. It's at that heart place that Jesus really wants to meet us. And he wants to do work. And he wants to offer us good news. And he wants to bring us out of hiding and into the light. To experience his love and his grace. And because Jesus knows this, he turns the conversation back. And he says, essentially, the day is coming and it's here where it's not about who you are or what you've done, but it's about who you worship. Because God, my Father, he's looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. He's not looking for just the perfect people who have it all together, but he's looking for people who will believe, who will believe in me, who will believe in me as their Savior, who will trust in my grace and who will worship him in spirit and in truth because what we know is that once we experience the grace of God, he gives us the Holy Spirit. That we aren't alone, but that we have God with us. And the woman says, well, I know that there's one coming, Jesus Christ, and he'll show us what we need to do. And then Jesus just says, well, I'm him, which is pretty amazing. She's been having this conversation And then Jesus just says, hey, I am the Christ. 
And so what's the response? What happens next? This is pretty amazing. Just then, his disciples came back. They were looking for food, remember? Trying to find a Trader Joe's. Um, They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So his disciples come back and they see that Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman. But nobody says anything. All right? Um, imagine that you're walking, you're walking down Roosevelt and you just happen to look into a bar. And uh, I'm just hanging out with, uh, with a stripper or with a prostitute. And you're just like, mm, what's going on here? Like, is there something I should be concerned about? Is there something I should be worried about here? Does Laura know? Like, he's... He's having this conversation, and the disciples come up, and they're just like, uh, but they don't say anything. And I think that at this point, the disciples have started to realize that Jesus kind of beats to his own drum. Not even his own drum, the Father's drum. That he wasn't like anyone else they'd ever spent time with. He had a different agenda. Because he was God sent down to seek and to save that which was lost, and this woman was lost. And he wanted to give her hope. And so they don't say anything, although you can imagine what was going on in their minds. And this shows us, this whole, this, whole, this whole story here, this shows us the amazing expanse of the gospel. It's not by coincidence that John, earlier on in chapter 3, has Jesus talking to Nicodemus, a very highly regarded religious leader. And then in chapter 4, he has Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman who he had no business talking with, who had had five husbands and was living with a guy now. Why does John do this? Because he wants us to see what Jesus wants us to see. That the gospel is good news for all people, all sorts of people, all types of people, people of all different pasts, people of all different presents. There's no break, there's no divide. From the lowest of the low to the highest of the high, God's grace is good. The grace that Jesus has to offer is good. And he wants us to know this, that it's unbiased. It doesn't see color. It doesn't see a dollar amount in a bank account. It sees each person created in the image and likeness of God having equal value and equal worth. It breaks through religion. It breaks through sin. And as we've seen in this passage, it even breaks through racial tension. With everything going on in our nation right now, the only place, the only thing that's going to bring about true reconciliation, true healing, is when this is taken to the cross. Is when the gospel intercedes. Do you notice something phenomenal here? How this grace that Jesus offers her changes everything about her. Remember, she was out here at 12 o'clock because she didn't want to be around the people in the town. And now what is she doing? She's running back to the people of the town. The people that had rejected her. The people that um, she felt shame being around. It's like this veil's been lifted. She now has freedom, and she's running back to the town to tell them this amazing good news. Because that's what happens when grace is experienced. Is this prison that shame would seek to hold us in, the doors flung wide open, and we can go free with this good news. And that's what she does. She runs back to the town. She wants to tell them everything that she's experienced because where shame isolates, grace initiates. And that's what happens. She initiates with the people back in the town that had rejected her. This is phenomenal. This is like a light switch change, which is amazing because Jesus can do that. 
And in verse 31, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? This is amazing. This is actually hilarious. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You can see the disciples like looking around like, like, did Jesus pack, like, a Snickers bar or something in his robe, and he, like, pulled it out? Like, you know, it satisfies hunger. So um, they're just looking around, like, did somebody bring him something to eat? Like, did, did we not really check with him? Did he have food? And then he says, my food is to do the will of the Father. And they're like, oh, okay, he's going deep again with us. Um, he's not talking about literal food. He's talking about something spiritual. Carry on, Jesus. And so he says in verse 35, do you not say... There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I will tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering the fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus uses this as his teaching moment. He says you have a role to play. He says you have a role to play. As my grace goes forward and the good news that my grace will wipe away shame, will wipe away sin of the past, as people hear that and they experience it, there will be a great response. There will be a great response because a grace demands a response. And so because where sin is a prison and shame is a prison, grace is the key to freedom. And, and while he's saying this, this is what's beautiful. He's using this analogy of a harvest but while he's saying this, as he tells them to look up, what are they seeing? What are they seeing? They're seeing the people from the town coming toward them. In verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. If you're a believer, Satan's greatest lie that he would love for you to believe, one of his greatest lies is that you are still under condemnation. That you are not good enough for the love of God. And the reason he wants you to believe this is because if you believe this lie, which equates in shame, you'll be so consumed by that and so focused on that that you won't see this opportunity to share the good news of the gospel and of grace with others. Because you've yet to truly believe it in a functional day-to-day way yourself. Satan wants nothing more than to, for believers to believe this because then you're ineffective when it comes to kingdom work, when it comes to evangelism. And what's amazing here is that this woman goes from avoiding everyone in her town to now being the greatest evangelist. Jesus uh, offers her this grace and she goes running back. And I'm sure the people were amazed. One, that she wanted to have a conversation with him and two, what she had to say. They could clearly see that something was different in her life, that she'd experienced something that they at least wanted to take a look at. And so they come running out because she had experienced grace, because this prison door was opened by grace, because of the freedom that she now had. And you might be saying, okay, okay, I know this in my head. I, I know that I've been forgiven. I know there's no more condemnation. 
but what do I do tomorrow morning? What do I do Monday morning when I still have this feeling of shame in my life? What do I do? And here's what I would say, going back to what we talked about just a few minutes ago. I would say shine a light on the feeling, shame, with the truth of the gospel. Shine a light on the feeling, shame, with the truth of the gospel. And then act on that truth and not the feeling. Act on that truth and not the feeling. And how does this look? How does it work itself out? Well, here's, here's the truth. The fullness of grace is only known once you've experienced it. It's only known once you've experienced it. We could talk all day about what you should do, but chances are you know. But the question is, will you take a step forward to actually experience it? And here's the truth. I'm not going to lie to you. This requires some risk. It requires some risk. Because it requires walking in the light and being known and being vulnerable. It requires being honest with the people in your community, with your husband, with your wife. It, it takes risk. And I'm not going to tell you that, that it's going to be easy. But I will tell you that Jesus will meet you there. You don't go it alone. And so if you feel like you've been robbed of your joy and of freedom, would you take a, a risk and step out? And trust that Jesus is going to meet you there. And that his grace is actually good for you. And here's what I would say. Do this with people who you know. Do this with people who love you. Do this with people who care about you. This is the importance of community. This is why we want you to be in a life group. To be honest, like this isn't a shameless plug. This is something we believe in. Because this is a place where you need to be known. Where you can live out life. Where you can bring things into the light. And, and here's the deal, and I want you to hear this church as, as I'm saying, take a risk. What it means is that we need to respond in a very similar way to Jesus and not condemn when people open up. We need to not seek to just offer a quick fix when people open up. We need to not talk about anyone behind their back or treat anyone differently. But we need to encourage, we need to support, we need to listen, and we need to offer grace because we're grace-filled people. We're grace-filled people, so if people are going to open up, people are going to be honest, if people are going to bring things out of the closet and out of hiding and, and all of that, then it means that we need to receive that with grace. There is no room in Jesus' church for condemnation. Not from his church. There's no room for it. There's no room for slander. There's no room for looking down on someone. There's no room for judgment. There's only room for love and grace. And so we actually get to be incredibly countercultural, where culture would say, you are defined by what you've done and how you feel. We get to say, no, you're defined by Jesus and his blood that's covered your sin. And now you can walk free. That's the type of people we have to be. That's the type of community that we have to be. And so, yeah, it's a risk. And in, in life groups this week, we're going to give you the opportunity to be vulnerable and to be honest and to be open. And I just want to offer you a couple truths as we wrap this up. I love what Psalm 103 says. And so know this. You just need to hear this. If it's the sin of your past that's brought about shame, Psalm 103 gives an incredible encouragement. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That sin of your past, if you have a relationship with Jesus, he's washed you clean. It's not coming back. It's removed. You can let it go. You can trust that he's already paid the price for it. You don't need to carry it anymore. You do not need to carry it anymore. Jesus has already carried it. He already carried it to the cross for you. It's not coming back. It does not need to define you. 
because Jesus and his righteousness defines you now. You are clean. You are so clean that you are considered a saint in God's eye. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You don't need to do more to measure up. You don't need to do more to be good enough because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You are clean. You are loved. You are cared for. You are a child of God. And so there are really only two options here. You can either carry shame on your back or carry it to the cross. You can either carry the shame on your back or you can carry it to the cross. And here's the beauty. You don't even have to carry it to the cross. Jesus already has. He's already taken it. He's already walked it right up to the cross and he's nailed it there. That's the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus would come just as he did to this woman. He would come and he would live amongst us. And he would take the worst of our worst. And he would take it all upon his back. And he would take it to the cross so that we don't have to suffer, but instead can experience joy and freedom and be clean and no longer condemned. That's good news, right? That's the best news. But the question is, do we believe it? And will we walk in it? Satan wants you to believe you're condemned, but let me just say once again, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you're not. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, just as he offered grace to this woman freely, he offers it to you. Just as free. It's just as good. It'll wipe you just as clean. And if you haven't experienced his grace, and maybe you just haven't experienced his grace because you thought that your sin was too much, because you thought that Jesus wouldn't accept you, that he couldn't love you, that you, you, you aren't good enough, that's an absolute lie. And he offers you his grace. And all you have to do is lay your sin down. Realize that you need a savior. His name is Jesus. He already paid for your sin. And accept his grace. Believe in him. Trust in him as Lord. And he will give you new life. He will give you eternal life. And he will radically change everything about your life. Because that's what grace does. That's what grace does. And so if that's you, accept his grace tonight. Because it's good news for you. So let me just ask you a few questions as we wrap this up. What in your life do you need to hand over to Jesus and stop carrying? Just think about it as we come toward communion. What in your life do you need to hand over to Jesus and stop carrying on your back? Because he's already carried it to the cross. What are you hiding that you need to bring out in the open? Maybe, it's, maybe you've been hiding it for years. Maybe it's a struggle. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's just something that... You, You've really feared what would happen if you brought it out. What do you need to bring out into the open? What do you need to bring out into the light? What needs to be exposed so that you aren't in chains anymore but can have freedom? And who can you bring that out into the light with? First and foremost, do that with Jesus. If you've never confessed it, if you've never talked with Jesus about it, do that. And who in your life, who in our life is carrying shame and needs to experience or be reminded of grace? Because just like this woman, we now get to pee used by God to communicate grace once we've experienced grace. It doesn't stop with us just experience it. Now we get to communicate it because we have a role to play. And Jesus wants us to play that role. You are loved. You're loved. You are clean. If you are in Christ, you are clean. The thing that's been holding you captive for so long, Jesus already took to the cross. So let it remain there. You are clean. You are loved. You are a child of God. And you can walk in freedom. Because where shame is a prison, the only real key is grace. 
And here's the amazing and wonderful thing is that Jesus offers that key to you freely because of what he's already done. So would we experience it and live out of it? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that is amazing, wonderful, great news. And it's because of his scandalous, amazing grace.